San Diego's talk radio leader, 760 KFMB presents It's Your Money and Your Life. For the next hour, Richard Musio and Joe Vecchio will educate and inform you on matters related to your financial future, your life, and your leisure. Now, with It's Your Money and Your Life, here are Richard and Joe. All right, good evening, everybody. My name is Joe Vecchio, your co-host, announcer, and producer, coming to you from KFMB Studios with 50,000 watts of power. We're heard not just in San Diego County, but Orange County, L.A. County, up the coast of Seattle on a good night, down to Cabo, out to the desert. If you download the app for 760 KFMB or tune in radio, you can hear this show as it airs on any device. And, of course, all these podcasts are commercial-free on iymoney.com and iTunes. Now time to introduce the main man of the hour. He's a CPA extraordinaire, an accomplished marathon runner, a philanthropist, a lecturer, a best-selling author, and a family office expert advising several high-net-worth families. His name is Richard Musio. Richard, good evening. How are you tonight? I am doing great, Joe. It's great to be here, as always. Absolutely. Hey, we've got a VIP guest tonight. I know we like to make a lot of uh, idle chatter sometimes at the top of the show, but uh, this we'll is an important guest yeah. because he is probably one of the preeminent and most uh, well-known, notable, and retired class action attorneys in the history of American law, and his name is Melvin Weiss. We call him Mel. Mel, welcome to the show. Thank you. Yeah. I'm glad to be with you. Yeah. How was that for an introduction? Close enough? <laughs> well, any time you call me the biggest and the best, I'll always accept it. <laughs> well, of course, um, uh, we know all about your class action lawsuits, securities, and everything. We're going to go over that in a little detail. But uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, where you were born and raised and uh, your education and how you got into the law career? Very humbly. Okay. Uh, I was born in the Bronx, 1935. Mm-hmm. Uh, August 1st. All right. By the way, and, happy uh, birthday. Hmm? Happy birthday, then. Well, thank you. It's coming, it's coming up. Yeah, my, coming up. My, uh, my father uh, at the time was a, uh, an accountant working for the IRS. Hmm. And uh, <clears throat> therefore, um, I lived through the Second World War as a, a very young person, but it left a big impression on me. Uh, after the war, my father went into his own practice, and uh, as a student in high school and college and indeed in law school, I worked part-time for him throughout that whole period, hmm. and I learned to hate accounting. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I wound up with a headache every, every Friday. Yeah. It took me the weekend to recover. So you're saying your dad, uh, but, your, your dad was the dean of a law school, too? No, no, no. He was an accountant. Oh, okay. Okay. And, and his he, his clientele were retail and some wholesale business people in New York City. Mm-hmm. So I traveled throughout the Bronx, in Manhattan, Queens, Brooklyn, with him. Uh, he had some clients in the uh, wholesale business, especially in the meat business. Mm-hmm. So we would have to get get started at three o'clock in the morning. Wow. <laughs> so I got to know a lot about. The personality of these uh, small business people throughout the city, mm. and um, then after the war, uh, let's see, we moved to to Hollis Hills, Queens. My father mm-hmm. had a, a house, a modest house, being built, and uh, I wound up at a Jamaica high school. And uh, after high school, my father lost some money. Uh, investing in a client, <clears throat> and uh, 
he couldn't really afford to send me to an out-of-town school. Hmm. So I went to what was then downtown City College, uh, CCNY. Mm -hmm. It it later became Baruch College. Mm -hmm. And uh, while I was there, actually, uh, Eleanor Roosevelt uh, came with Bernard Baruch uh, on the day that they were uh, naming the school after him. And we all assembled in the auditorium, and there we were with these two legends. Hmm. After uh, college, uh, I decided to go to law school because I got involved in a political campaign for somebody who was running for state assembly, and he happened to be the dean. I'm sorry, not the dean, but the the head of the NYU Law Alumni Association. And he said, Mel, you should be a lawyer. (laughs) And his name was Nat Hentel. Ironically, he was the only lawyer I ever knew growing up. So uh, I was flattered. I didn't know. uh, I didn't want to go to to become a CPA or an accountant. Mm -hmm. So uh, I took him up on it, and I was accepted. And uh, I graduated two and a half years later because I started law school mid-year in in January. Wow. And I met my wife, who was at NYU uh, School of Ed. Uh She was a classmate of my sister who introduced us. And we're still married, and it's almost 60 years. That sounds like Erwin Jacobs here. Same thing with the you know CEO of Qualcomm here. Met his wife in college, and uh, they've been together. So, great yeah. story. Okay. So, in any event, um, after I, I graduated from law school, <clears throat> I, saw, I, w- I was uh, signed up as a uh, reservist. Uh, and uh, we had to go into the Army for six months, and then we had six years of reserve duty. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I went into the Army, uh, and um, I wound up at Fort Dix for basic training, and then I went to, to El Paso to Fort, uh, Fort Bliss mm-hmm. uh, for four months, came back out, and I got a job with uh, what is now Freed Frank, Harris, Shriver, and Jacobson. Mm. In those days, it was called Strasser, Spiegelberg, Freed, and Frank. Mm-hmm. And uh, after about a year and a half at that firm, uh, and my wife was pregnant, after she became a school teacher. Mm-hmm. She, she was pregnant. Uh, I switched into a different reserve unit. And within a week after that switch, uh, riding home one night, I heard that we were activated in the Berlin crisis. We were the first unit to be activated. Ah. So that would be 1962. Right. Berlin crisis, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. And uh, there, I said, I can't believe this. All of a sudden, I was private, by the way. I wasn't a, I wasn't a, uh, an, 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 an officer. officer. Uh-huh. Uh, within a week, I was down in Fort Bragg in North Carolina with a pregnant wife. Huh. And uh, my, my first child, Gary, was born in Fayetteville, North Carolina, oh at the Cape Fear Valley Hospital, which was part of the military. military. Yeah. And uh, when I, uh, it happened to be, at the time, it didn't seem that way. It happened to be a very lucky uh, turn of events for me because it gave me the opportunity to really think about what kind of a career I wanted. Did I want to stay with a big Wall Street-type firm, mm-hmm. or did I want to do something more entrepreneurial on my own? Well, that Wall and, Street, uh, was that Wall Street firm more defense work at the time? or the, Well, or, it, 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 don't forget... 
in those days, you didn't have big complex litigation mm. like, like we do today. Mm -hmm. uh, there, when, there, there was no real class action mm. uh, mechanism then. Right. There, there were some forms of ag aggregate litigation, but mm -hmm. nothing like we, we know today. So the, the, big, the big money makers down there were uh, transactional lawyers mm -hmm. and trusts in the state, real estate, mm -hmm. things like that. Mm -hmm. So I, uh, as a matter of fact, the most important case I had while I was at Strasser Spiegelberg was um, the wife of the, of the wealthiest client we had had her best gown destroyed by a dry cleaner. <laughs> <laughs> and when I, when I wound up getting the money back for, the, for that dress, Sam Harris, who was the, the, the guard of the firm, he was the number one corporate lawyer, he came into my office, he said, you're a hero. <laughs> so it didn't take that much for me to make my name. Yeah. So back to the military base uh, when you were determining the course of action for yourself. Right. So anyway, I, I wound up in a small firm uh, named Caleb and Jacobs. Mm -hmm. uh, they were on 40th and Madison. And they were, there were only five lawyers, six lawyers. There. It was a German-Jewish firm. Mm -hmm. And they had a very, a very uh, elite clientele. And uh, they did a lot of trust in the states. And uh, they had one litigator. His name was Bill Ivler, I-V-L-E-R. Mm -hmm. And he needed somebody as a second to him. And uh, I, I spent three years under his tutelage. Mm -hmm. And he decided then to go to a, uh, a client as an executive vice president, uh, a construction company. And he, he said to me, Mel... He said, if you can get a partner who is more experienced, I'll, I'll send you the business from, the, from Kevin Construction, which was the company he was going to. Mm -hmm. And actually, as it turned out, he introduced me to Larry Milberg. Mm. Now, Larry Milberg was 22 years my senior at the time, mm. and he had graduated Harvard Law School, uh, you know, during the Depression. Mm. Uh, he was a, a very studious, brilliant guy. Yeah. And, um, and he had a general practice. Wonderful. And I, I joined, I joined uh, Larry. Mel, Mel, pardon me. We have to pause right there. We'll pick it up right this. We've got to come take a break. We'll be back with Mel Weiss, notable and retired class action attorney, right after this. Hang on. <laughs> All right, we're back. We're back with Mel Weiss. On the, he's actually on the East Coast talking with us about his notable career. He's probably the godfather of class action lawsuits uh, as we know them or knew them. And, uh, Mel, let's pick it up where we left off. I guess we're giving, getting sure. to the genesis of uh, Milberg Weiss there, right? Exactly. Mm -hmm. uh, at the time, there was no Rule 2023, 20, which is a class action rule that permits you to bring class actions in federal courts to enforce federal federal laws mm -hmm. but but the uh, there was a a securities litigation bar that handled what we call stockholders derivative work uh. and the, that, that means if a if you can show that somebody injured the company and they were in they were in control of the company mechanisms mm -hmm. 
and you and you knew that they weren't going to sue themselves. Right. <laughs> if you had a client who was a shareholder in that company, you could bring an action in the name of the company mm-hmm. against the alleged wrongdoers. Mm. And that's why it's called a derivative action, because the real party in interest is the company, yeah. not, not the shareholders directly. Yeah. In a representative class action, such as the ones that came into being in 1966, you're suing directly on behalf of the shareholders for direct injury to them mm. by the alleged wrongdoers. So Larry had gotten involved in some of these derivative actions, mm-hmm. and that's how I was introduced to the legends of of that bar yeah. back back in the '60s, especially Abraham Pomerantz. Yeah, uh, he he was a, a brilliant lawyer. Uh, who was part of the uh, prosecution of the of the war crimes in Nuremberg, wow. and uh, and then he formed a firm. It was called Pomerantz, Levy, Howdigan, Block, and uh, there were a couple of other lawyers who performed in in that arena. Is, so, is um, he, pardon me, just for a quick second, is he the same? Is that the ninety-four-year-old attorney who's still fighting? Um, um, he was he was 28 at the time in uh, in the Nuremberg, right? Is that the same attorney, or is it some? No, Abe oh. has, has passed. Okay, sorry. Okay, you saw something at like least 16 10, 15 years ago. Gotcha. Okay, but um, so, anyway, yeah. carry on with the uh, Rule 23 and all that. Well, in any event, um, first I had to convince Larry that we shouldn't take every little piece of of a lawyering. Uh, that came our way, that we had to make a name for ourselves as specialists. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he, would, he would take collection cases, anything, and, uh, and he made me carry a, uh, a retainer agreement in my wallet. <laughs> so if I got a telephone call, and believe me, these things happen, at 11 o'clock at night that Mrs. Schwartz up in the Bronx tripped and fell in an elevator, I would be the first one to see her. <laughs> ready to get the retainer signed. <laughs> so I, I finally convinced him that we had, to, we had to become more selective about the kinds of cases we took. Mm-hmm. And then Rule 23 comes along. And I looked at Larry and I said, you know something? This is an, a brand new field. We're, we're perfectly suited for it because our educational background and my experience in accounting um, we should, we should really start bringing these kinds of cases. Mm-hmm. And in the derivative uh, cases, the, the plaintiff's lawyer didn't have to pay for a notice at the beginning of the case. The only time he really had to send out a notice was after a settlement was entered into. Mm-hmm. And once you have a settlement, then the defendants are going to pay for the notice. So the, these lawyers who were plaintiff's lawyers uh, in the derivative field, they they were not really ready to open up their pocketbooks for expensive notices. Hmm. And I said to Larry, come on, let's do it. <laughs> and and uh, the first two cases we, we got involved in, uh, ironically, uh, turned out to be interesting cases. And we didn't, we didn't have a lot of other people in the cases. We were the, the only law firm in those two cases. Uh, there were two two kinds of ways you get into these cases. One is what I call a public domain case, mm-hmm. where something breaks 
in the news, the SEC starts a proceeding, or there's some sort of a criminal case brought against the company. So everybody finds out about the alleged wrongdoing at the same time. So you usually have multiple cases being started mm-hmm. by lawyers around the country. The other kind is what I call proprietary cases, where some, a client comes to you, you do your investigation, and it was based upon your investigation that you were able to structure a complaint. And that, of course, became easier to get control over, over because you would be the only one to start the case. Then when others saw that you started the case, they may pile on also. Gotcha. So... Um, we, we, we settled a couple of cases, and I have a very distinct memory of one of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, we get a call one day from a, part, a young partner in a major Wall Street law firm. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure. If, I think it was Davis Polk. And, and, and the lawyer happened to become a federal judge after. Uh, <clears throat> he said, we have a client, an institutional client, uh, that has a loss in that situation, uh, but they don't want to be the, uh, you know, the uh, the banner, hold the banner in the case. Gotcha. They want to. They, they, they'd rather we help you behind the, behind the scenes. And I looked at Larry and I said, "This is a great break, breakthrough because now a big Wall Street law firm is looking to to two two guys on their own, you know, to carry the ball in the." Mm-hmm. And, a, and a litigation that they consider significant, and and we did, and we and we we settled those cases. Then the the big break in my life was um, we we brought into the firm a lawyer by the name of David Burchett, mm-hmm. uh, and his father had invested in a company called Dolly Madison Industries, mm. and uh, that was uh, it was a, a a company that was involved both in. Dolly, Dolly Madison ice cream, mm-hmm. and also they had a chain of furniture stores. And uh, and uh, Touche Ross was their auditor. Mm. So I started to look at actions against accounting firms. Mm-hmm. And it was really very fascinating. From, from, 19, uh, uh, from 1936... Uh, at, uh, I mean, I'm sorry, in 1932, mm-hmm. uh, after the SEC came into being, and uh, and the accounting profession, for the first time, accepted the concept of independence, uh, and the AICPA came into being, the American Institute of Certified Public Accountants. Mm-hmm. From that time forward until 1966, I couldn't find a single case where the big eight accounting firms were sued for securities fraud. <laughs> not, not even a private action. Okay, of wow. course, there was the Ultramaris case that uh, the famous Judge Cardozo decided, which uh, uh, forced us to have to prove something more than mere negligence, mm-hmm. uh, unless there was privity. Mm-hmm. But in any, in any event, um, I said to Larry, Let, let's, let's go after these people, uh, you know, if we have the goods. And that case wound up on trial down in Philadelphia. Mm. And it was the first class action against a big firm 
As a matter of fact, I think it might have been the first class action under Rule 23 mm. that went to trial. Huh. And uh, here I am against the, one of the biggest law firms in Philadelphia, Wolf Block, Shaw, Solis, Cohn, representing Touche Ross. And, and Mel, let's hold it right there. We'll give us the big answer and the result. That's a good cliffhanger. We'll come back with Mel Weiss, the godfather of class action lawsuits, right after this. <laughs> We're back with the award-winning It's Your Money and Your Life. And now this is the time Richard likes to thank our sponsors. Big thank you to our sponsors. Couldn't do the show without them. UBS with Michael Carranza at the top of that list. Speaking of CPA firms, we've got two favorite firms, Signature Analytics, Jason Kruger's firm, a great CFO firm, very specialized services as CPAs, and more traditional CPAs, Polito Epic CPAs with Don Epic and Paul Polito. And again, not members of the big four, the big eight, anything else. These are just great regional firms. Our great friend, Joel Grushkin, with Cost Segregation Initiatives. Joel helps real estate owners improve their cash flow. Also, Sean Puckett. Sean, of course, is the VP for the Senegal region of Mechanics Bank. Very interesting and a unique bank because they serve wealthy families, family offices, and those families that own real estate businesses. Also, Hub International, great employee benefits firm. Obviously, health care reform is up in the air in its... Well, nobody knows what's going to happen, but if employee benefits are top of your mind, Hub International, great benefits firm. Also, the LG Experience and the Lombardi Group, helping wealth advisors make heroes out of CPAs to the CPAs, very best clients. Last week's guest, Paul Hines. Paul, of course, heads up Hearthstone Private Wealth Management, and he's also the catalyst behind SeniorSafeAndSound.org here in San Diego, helping to prevent financial abuse of the elderly. Also, our great friend, Michelle St. Clair with Elite Lifestyle Management, a great concierge service here in San Diego. For those of you who want to get your most precious asset back, that would be your time. Elite Lifestyle Management can do that for you. And of course, Brenda Geiger, speaking of great attorneys, Geiger Law is specializing in asset protection and estate planning. Also, we like to eat around here, right, Joe? So we can help you there, too. Absolutely. There's the Very Good Food Foundation, headed up by Michelle ciccarelli Lirac, putting on great foodie programs throughout the year. And, of course, Lestat's Coffee Houses, uh, University Heights, Normal Heights, and a new one on University Avenue, all open 24-7, 365. And I know many of these uh, sponsors have been working with you with great success for many years, right, Richard? Many decades, in some cases, like pushing three decades, 30 years. Time flies when you're having fun. Yeah. If you get over to iymoney.com, there's a sponsor tab there. You can uh, get all the information about our sponsors and, of course, the archives of all these great shows, like the one we're having today, with the godfather of class action lawsuits, probably one of the most preeminent lawyers and great, brilliant legal minds in the whole field of class actions, uh, Mel Weiss, who is back with us from Oyster Bay. Right, Mel? That's correct. There you is, that, go. is that where John McEnroe's from, I'm by the way? I'm looking out at, at the most beautiful view of the uh, Oyster Bay. Wonderful. And right across the water from me is Billy Joel. Really? Nice. I, I just saw yesterday I watched a helicopter land on his front lawn and pick him up to take him to some great place to sing. How about that? It probably wasn't <laughs> Allentown, but anyway. So, Mel, we were talking about, uh, when we last left off, uh, this case against Touche Ross. Uh, you, you Golly Madison it? and Touche Ross. Yeah. You want to pick it yeah. up? Well, interestingly, uh, the company itself had gone into bankruptcy. Hmm. And it was represented by a, a preeminent law firm in Philadelphia, Pepper Hamilton and Sheets. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, I said to my, and the judge, federal judge, came out of that firm. So I determined it would be wise if I settled with the bankrupt estate and got Pepper Hamilton out of the case, mm-hmm. which I did. So I had what I had left was some of the directors, uh, the two founders, the Rittmaster, uh, uncle and, and nephew, uh, and uh, and a couple of the directors, and the accounting firm, Touche Ross. Mm-hmm. And then I decided I'm going to waive a jury. And I guess the defendants, being a Philadelphia firm, and the head of the defense uh, on the uh, representing Touche was the president of the Philadelphia Bar Association. Huh. They felt, okay, it's their home court. If this, if this jackass wants to waive a jury for <laughs> our home court, we'll go along with it. Wow. Well, um, so now we're trying it without a jury. So it's just a bench and trial. What, what year is this again, Mel? About 1972. 72, okay. The trial's going on. So... You know, when when you take depositions and you can't get the witness to come to the trial, you can read the transcript. And what we do as trial lawyers is we put somebody on the stand and they play the role of the witness. Uh-huh. So you, the lawyer reads the question uh-huh. and the, the planted witness reads the answer right out of the transcript. Yeah. Well, I knew we were doing well. <laughs> When the judge stops me in the middle and says, Mr. Weiss, I'd like to ask the witness a question. (laughs) (laughs) Now, you can imagine how I felt. How am I going to wiggle out of this one? I don't want to embarrass him. But you can also imagine how the defendants felt. (laughs) Because they knew this judge was really into it. Oh, my God. (laughs) So I, I I said, Your Honor, I'm so pleased that you're finding this convincing enough to want to engage in questions and answers with the witness, but we're reading from the transcript. Right. And he, he got a kick out of that. He goes, stick to the script. <laughs> you have to stick to the script, Your Honor. I'm sorry. <laughs> and, then, and then I wanted to put on an expert witness from Wall Street. Uh-huh. And um, the defendants decided to voir dire him, meaning they're going to challenge his credentials. Uh-huh. In the middle of that, the judge says, Mr. Weiss, I'd like to, I'd like to talk to you about another matter in chambers. <laughs> so I go back there, and he says, I don't think this witness is good enough for your case. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. And I said, Your Honor, I can't find an establishment witness yeah. who will go up against these big accounting yeah. firms. Yeah. He says, I'm going to give it. I'm going to take two weeks, and maybe I can come up with it. <laughs> <laughs> And when I retire, can I come and work for you? <laughs> now, That's great. I, I was suffering oh my God. from what I thought was pneumonia at the time. <laughs> I mean, I was, I was yeah. coughing my guts out. Yeah. And, and, and then the judge looks at me and he says, you remind me of my father. Oh, my God. He, he was a famous trial lawyer. Yeah. He says, he tried until he bled from the rectum. Oh, my and God. I said, That's where I'm bleeding from right now. We got something in common. <laughs> so oh anyway, during that two-week period, I took my wife down to Curacao to get get some heat on my on my body. Yeah. And and during that time, they called me up and they 
they wanted to settle the case. Yeah. And I settled it for over $2 million in 1972. Wow. That's a big money That, that was, I mean, my, my, we were on the balls of our backsides yeah. financially yeah. financing this whole effort. Yeah. Wow. That's a big, so, big deal. What was the name of that judge? Do you happen to recall, or do you, do you want? Do you remember? Or not, not want to tell, or what? Uh, it will come to me. Okay, that's uh, fine. But I have to tell you, I have to tell you a story about him. Also, uh-huh. there was there was an opening on the Third Circuit Court of Appeals, and somebody had mentioned his name, and Joe Lloyd, who was a famous judge in that district, said, "If he gets, if he gets the appointment." It'll elevate the intellect of both courts. <laughs> <laughs> That's how little they thought about that. This guy came from a very wealthy family. Gotcha, gotcha. Mel, hey, this is fascinating stuff. Richard, you had a question? Yeah, yeah, you went up against Michael Milken in the Drexel Burnham case, too, right? Oh, yes. Well, so, th- that was a huge case. That case was started by my, my partner, Bill Iraq, out mm-hmm. in California. Mm-hmm. And uh, he actually, Bill, came up with the concept of the daisy chain. Mm -hmm. And uh, the cases were transferred to a judge in New York. And at that point, we decided that I would take over the Mm -hmm. case. And uh, that turned out to be a huge case. And we wound up, not only did we have one case, we we had about 10 mates major class actions against different companies that were part of the daisy chain, like Executive Life, yeah. uh, like, um, uh, what's his name, uh, the, the, the Ke- one down in Arizona. Charles or, Keating, uh, Charles Keating. Ke- the Keating yeah. case. Lincoln. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lincoln Savings. Yeah. Uh, uh, integrated Resources. So they, they were all part of it. Yeah. And then the... Uh, SNLs that bought a lot of these bonds failed yeah. all over the country. We'll talk about and junk bonds. That's when they first came into being, yeah. right? We'll come back with Mel Weiss. Got to take a little break right now. We'll come right back after this. Hang on. All right, we're back with Mel Weiss with Little Green Acres. Uh, we got you guys did uh, recover in your careers. I think uh, in excess of fifty billion. Is that a fair number to say against all this fraud and stock fraud and everything? It's a number we used. I mean, as an example, life insurance marketing fraud cases alone mm-hmm. was over fifteen billion. Wow! Wow! And, wow. Uh, and Bill handled the uh, Enron case and recovered something like five or six billion. Right. And then uh, our cases against the Germans and the Swiss for the Holocaust claimants was about six and a half billion. Yeah. Which so I when th- you add it all up, there's a lot of yeah. Well, I think, uh, well, <clears throat> we, did we cover everything with Milken? Because I want to get into the Holocaust litigations, Richard. What do you think? Well, we were talking about how that cascaded down to the savings and loans. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, that was, is that when the, the term junk bonds first came into being? I think we didn't even hear about that term until the late 70s. Right. He, he created 80s, me, 80s. Mm-hmm. what was called junk bonds. Yeah. Where um, these bonds weren't of the same credit ratings as the better bonds. Mm-hmm. But it permitted these companies to raise money paying somewhat more in interest than higher rated bonds, but not enough to offset the real risk that was being uh, taken. Yeah, gotcha. In any event, what happened quickly is that the government, the RTC and the FDIC, hired Pravat, Swain, and Moore 
to mm. represent the government uh, for, after they took over these SNLs. Mm -hmm. So we were co-counsel in those cases, mm. and we ultimately recovered a couple of billion dollars. Half of it went to the government, and half of it went to our clients. Mm. Gotcha. Perfect. And that, those were huge cases, and nobody yeah. ever recovered billions yeah. up until then. <clears throat> so, Mel, the Holocaust litigations, that, uh, when did you first get an inkling that that's something you wanted to pursue, and when did that uh, all those uh, cases of uh, litigation begin? Okay, this is what happened. I'm sitting at my desk one day, and it was 90, about 1996, and I get a telephone call from a lawyer in Washington, D.C., Michael Hausfeld, and he said, Mel, um, I'm working with some lawyers. Uh, we were sort of working with the Wiesenthal Center uh, to, to fashion cases against the Swiss banks for failing to uh, pay uh, the monies back to the slave laborers, predominantly Jews, during mm -hmm. the Second World War. And um, we wanted to bring the action in, in Brooklyn, federal court in Brooklyn. And we need we need you to be the the New York lawyer. Uh, that that's a part of our team. Wow! And I said, I said, Michael, it will be my my duty and obligation, and I, I'll do it if it's pro bono. That we don't we're not charging anything for it. And that that led to years of the most exciting cases in my life. Mm. Uh, it led to ultimately my starting the case, the cases against the German industrial complex, mm -hmm. which my firm came up, started. I got a call one day from Abe Sofair, who had been a, a Columbia law professor and then a federal judge, and then he went to work for the State Department, and now he was then he, he became a professor at uh, Stanford, and he's still there, mm -hmm. and. Uh, he called me up, and I had, I had litigation before him in New York, and he said, I know a woman who's an expert, and she has some theories uh, to permit actions against ger the German yeah. uh, complex. So I got her on the phone, and to cut it short, I wound up bringing her and her daughter to New York. She joined my firm. Uh, I had people like Abe, like uh, Arthur Miller, Professor Arthur Miller, from, then from Harvard Law School, he's now a university professor at NYU. Mm -hmm. I had him look at it. I had a couple of other people study it, and we all concluded that uh, we should bring the action. Mm. And I decided that the first one I wanted to bring, uh, ironically, was against Ford Motor Company. Mm -hmm. And the reason I picked Ford is that uh, Time Magazine was having a nationwide poll the outstanding industrialist of the century. <laughs> and the one who was leading it was Henry Ford. Yeah. And I knew that he was a big anti-Semite. Mm -hmm. and, and they had a plant in Germany that Essel Ford and another Ford Motor director sat on the board of. Yeah. Wow. Halfway through the Second World War. And then they, when, when they left, no, nothing was ever done to harm that plant. Right, and at the end of the war, they were they were knocking out cars and trucks, you know, for civil 
uh, right. consumption right. without any injury. And it, it, I got so angry that I decided I was going to I was going to bring the, the first case against Ford. Yeah, because Ford and, and, I, Jim, and, I, and they were using slave labor too, right? I mean, in those oh places. yeah, yeah. Slave and for we had two different categories: forced laborers and slave laborers. Yeah. Uh, in any event, uh, I even had records of de- uh, of uh, newborn babies who never survived, and uh, and I used that. That that led to actions against, you know, most of the German complex. Mm-hmm. And uh, during, so t- we were litigating both sets of cases at the same time. I brought in some of the lawyers from the Swiss bank case to work with me on the German case as well. And uh, th- th- there's five books already about, about those cases. Right. I think the, the one that is the most informative is the one that was written by Stuart Eisenstadt, mm-hmm. who was deputy secretary of, of, um, uh, of well, he was uh, undersecretary of state. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the Clinton administration, and Clinton appointed him to work with us. Yeah, and the book was Imperfect Justice, right? Imperfect Justice. Yeah. And uh, there's another one written by two uh, British journalists who follow us around, and that's called The Victim's Fortune. Mm-hmm. In any event, we spent years on, on those litigations. We had eight different governments working with us. We had Belarus, and we had uh, Czech Republic, and we yeah. had, of course, the State of Israel. We we used we were the first meeting uh, to to open up the legislative building in Berlin when the, when they moved the capital from Bonn to Berlin. Hmm. And um, as a matter of fact, in the centerfold of imperfect justice, there's a photograph of those of us who signed the final uh, the final agreement. Mm-hmm. Uh, we also attended the first apology made by the head of, it, of the German government, President Rao, mm-hmm. at, at his, at his uh, home. Wow. Uh, I was there, and uh, Bert Newborn wow. was a famous professor of law at NYU uh, and who worked with us in all of this. He was with me there. Uh, we we had some great heroes in that in that case, yeah. and we also had some bums. But I don't want to get into that. <laughs> well, it said, it said imperfect justice, right? <laughs> that was over well, six billion know, recovered. It, it, right? it, it's a tough. It was a tough situation because a lot of the victims didn't want anything from these people. They didn't think that any amount of money, right. Could, could could make up for, for the wrongs that were perpetrated. Of course. But um, as long as I have a minute or two, I came, during the course of that, I, I wound up with a client by the name of Ellie Gross. Mm-hmm. And uh, I want to read the uh, prologue that I wrote for the, a book of poems that she, uh, that she prepared. Uh, it's... It'll take a minute or two. I tell you what, I read it? It, well, you know what? We could do it, but I think we ought to do it in the bonus track because I don't want to cut you off when you start doing that. So uh, we will definitely do that. But you guys recovered six point what two five billion in that, and then I know Paul Volcker had another group. They got about one point something billion. No, let me tell you, I I'm not a fan of the Volcker yeah, I know. Commission. <laughs> gotcha. uh, I'm serious because 
that was to me that was just a cover up. Yeah. They hired three of the three of the big accounting firms, paid them a ton of money. Yeah. They 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 uh he was on he he was on the board with with all of the um corporations there. Nestle's he yeah. was on the board oh of Nestle. Oh my gosh. Okay. <laughs> I, I mean, you know, he we're gonna, you know, hold it right there, Mel. We're gonna go to, we're gonna have a bonus track, folks. So go to the website, iwebmoney.com. We'll get the rest of the story. We were talking with Mel Weiss. Mel, thanks for being our guest, and we'll get, uh, we'll have a little bonus with you in a moment or so. Richard Riso, great seeing you. Uh, Justin Harder, t- Sound Tech, thanks for making it sound terrific. Thanks to Craig Blanke and Dave Sniff here at KFMB. All these podcasts are commercial free on iwebmoney.com. We'll see you next week, and we get over to the bonus track. Bye bye.